You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things travel and now on to the show with your host from Christchurch New Zealand Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch Happy New Year and welcome aboard another edition of Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Chris Lynch. And I'm Mike Yardley. Did you have a good Christmas, Chris? I really did. Never long enough, though. No. Never long enough, but it was a lovely, lovely break. But I'm actually really pleased to be back with you because we've got so much to discuss. And there's no rest for us, is there? Because we're going to be discussing a favourite place of yours, Dubai. Mm-hmm. And it is shaping up to be quite an incredible year this year. I would love to go to this expo. You've got some real interesting details about this, eh? Yeah, Dubai are really talking up their World Expo, which will be on for six months. And I suppose it's uh, very apt, Chris, that because all things in Dubai are bigger and better and brighter, they are very much taking that approach to their expo. And there will be 190 countries taking part, including us. I think we're spending about $50 million on the New Zealand pavilion. Um, And it will be very much like a mega city of pavilions that is still being built in the south of Dubai. If you believe their hype, they reckon Expo 2020 is going to be nothing short of an ultra-futuristic utopian fair. But the thing is, Dubai is already known for that, so mm. they want to... This will be like the city on steroids. It it's going to be amazing. Yeah. You've actually got some details about what we can expect, right? Yeah, well, I think probably the uh, the starring attraction, which is still being constructed at the moment, is Hyperloop technology. And I know there's been a lot of talk in the States about being able, able to travel like uh, from, say, LA to San Francisco on a Hyperloop. Elon Musk has been big into the talk about Hyperloop technology. Yeah. So in Dubai, at the World Expo, they are building uh, a Hyperloop between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. At the moment, if you got on, like, say, a public bus yeah. to do that trip, it's about 90 minutes to two hours. The Hyperloop will open for the World Expo, so you'll be able to, to travel between those two cities in 12 minutes. That is unbelievable. These expos, I was wondering though, do you actually think they leave any sort of legacy or is it just sort of a look at us, look what we're doing Mm. and a lot of people getting together to say look at us but really after that, does anything genuine happen? (laughs) What lingers? Yeah. Well, I went to the Brisbane World Expo as a kid in 88 and along uh, the the river uh, in Brisbane, there's still that huge lineup of museums and art galleries. Yeah. And they're a hangover from the expo. I suppose for Dubai, they're saying the Hyperloop link to Abu Dhabi will be the big legacy. Um, but it's interesting, Chris, because when you look at other expos from, say, the last century or so, uh, the Eiffel Tower was built for the expo in Paris. The ice cream cone was debuted uh, at the St. Louis World Fair or Expo and the telephone was first unveiled at the Philadelphia World Expo. So there have been some legacy items. Okay. I was quite surprised to hear that Dubai, I mean, as you know, it's such a lovely, massive city. Yes. But yet now they're going to do theme parks. 
And yeah. I wonder whether it'll take away the the very futuristic theme of it, but you know if they're going to do theme parks, It'll they're be, going to be amazing. Yeah, very bling, bling. <laughs> yeah. In fact, they've already started to try and attract that family travel dollar, and if people have been through Dubai in the last year or two, you've probably noticed the rise and rise of these theme parks. Um, one of the big attractions on that front at the moment is IMG, which is the world's largest temperature-controlled indoor theme park, and they've got Cartoon Network and Marvel anchoring all of the star power and the costumes and characters there. Um, because they're so close to India, Bollywood Park is really popular in Dubai. It's all very, you know, bling, bling India style. Uh, they've got Legoland. Uh, they've got Motion Gate, which was actually developed by DreamWorks. I think that was DreamWorks' oh. first sort of move into theme parks. And the next big one, which will open in about four months' time, which is probably a bit niche. Chris, this might be up your street. Zap. Zombie Apocalypse Park. So it's all the rides <laughs> yeah. and all of the attractions are going to be get around um, the living dead. Okay, that yeah. sounds nice. Mm. The thing is though, Mike, I'm surprised that they're going to all these lengths to create theme parks because when I think of Dubai, and I don't think it's an unkind thing to say that you think of it as a passing place for your next destination. Yeah. Are they trying to get, do you think they're trying to get people to stay longer? Very much so. Is yeah. it working? Well, I think uh, 10 years ago, um, I saw statistics that showed the average uh, traveller through Dubai would use it purely as a transit, and a lot of those travellers were just simply changing planes. Now, um, uh, take take it from a Kiwi perspective. If you're flying to Europe through Dubai, yeah. most Kiwis will now stop in Dubai, either on the way or home from Europe, uh, for a couple of nights. Dubai wants to extend that to a week. They want it to be a destination in its own right. Okay. Um, and speaking of some of that edgy architecture, there is plenty there, right? It's, there it's amazing. Um, at the moment, I'm sure people travelling to Dubai uh, in the last few months will have noticed that the world's largest Ferris wheel is taking shape. Now, this thing is going to be double the height of the London Eye. And of course, the London Eye, formerly known as Millennium Eye, was the one that sort of set in motion all of these damn observation wheels being erected around the world. There's the one in Las Vegas, which is very popular as well. Um, so that will open in 2020. And also taking shape, the Museum of the Future. I love the sound of this, Chris. It's all very silvery and sparkly, and the design of it looks like a giant hollowed out eye. And the idea is that when this opens, if you've uh, come across some amazing invention, right, Christopher yeah. Lynch from New Zealand with some prototype on some breakthrough technology, the idea is that you will want to have it showcased at this museum of the future. So it wants to sort of take on that, that status as a showcase of tomorrow's ideas. So you can even try and get some um, investment behind it. I'm, I'm sure, absolutely. Like the Dragon's Den, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. I want to go there now, actually. Yep. They'll uh, be happy to see you, Chris. Let's head to Asia and the Malaysian state of Sarawak, the main city is Kukching. It looks very pleasant, Mike, I must say, and very a lot of mix of different cultures. Yeah, that's the thing that really strikes you about uh, Kuching. It is an absolute melting pot and such a model, really, in some ways, to the world about multicultural harmony. I know a lot of people say that's what we should all aspire to uh, to be like, but I think Kuching does it really well because you've got Christianity, Islam, Buddhism and Hinduism, all very happy bedfellows in this city, which is slightly bigger than Christchurch. So it's not 
massive um, and, and a very uh, sort of human scale sort of place to discover. And there are so many really cool heritage touches to Kuching. They've got the old town with just row upon row of brightly painted Chinese shop houses. So if you've been to Singapore, for example, and you mm-hmm. look at those, you know, Chinese shop houses, you've got them by the truckload in Kuching, stunning wee stores, largely unchanged, lots of old craftsmen plying their wares from them. An absolutely amazing luxe, I'm told. Oh my goodness, I reckon it was the best I've ever had. In Kuching, they call it Luxa Sadawak. Um, and I suppose what gives it extra kick is the fact that it's extra spicy. It's got definitely more punch than your run-of-the-mill uh, Luxa. Very cleansing, Chris, a very cleansing Luxa. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's um, enough. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. join the dots there. Uh, they do great things with pancakes, uh, sweet pancakes, which they stuff with crushed peanuts and sugar. Uh, they do crispy oyster pancakes. And because they're so close to the South China Sea, obviously seafood is king. So um, other must-tries would be the giant prawns and their black pepper crab. Now, close by is the National Park. It looks very lush. Yeah. Um, Baku National Park is about yeah. 45 minutes from Kuching. It's an absolute cracker. Um, the, you can see just these giant crabs crawling out from the coastline all over the National Park on the shoreline there. Um, and they've got the most amazing, quite whimsical sandstone sea sculptures. So if you think of the 12 apostles yeah. along uh, the South Australian coast or the Victorian coast, similar to that, they all look like sort of Dr. Zeus characters, these sandstone sculptures just rising out of the water. Just a fabulous place and yeah, obviously a lot of wildlife. And it's a bit of monkey heaven as well. I love looking at monkeys. Oh my God, they've got so many types of primates. Um, long-tailed macaques, they're everywhere. They're the ones that are considered like the local mafia because they'll just <laughs> mug you. Uh, they'll routinely attack people for their food. Then high up in the trees uh, at Baku National Park, hundreds of proboscis monkeys with those huge pendulous noses. And fun facts for the day to start off 2020, (laughs) um, the proboscis monkey can maintain an erection for 24 hours, Chris. Oh, that sounds painful. Yes. That sounds very painful. By the way, if you do want to see orangutans, um, of course, Sarawak is part of the... Are you going to say you want to see something else? It's like, what? Where's where's this show going? going? Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's the holiday show. Um, Fun for all the family. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to see orangutans, because Sarawak is part of the island of <laughs> Borneo, yep. uh, you go to Semengoa Reserve, which is one of a couple of fabulous wildlife rehabilitation reserves they have in Sarawak, where they are helping to reintegrate injured or rescued orangutans back into the wild. It's absolutely fabulous. You'll get up really close to them. You're not allowed to spend much time with them because Mm. um, the wildlife rangers there are adamant that they don't want these fabulous primates to become too familiar with with people. So, yeah, really cool. What about Buktung? Yeah, um, if you want a bit of culture, ancient culture, Batang, which is about four hours east of Kuching, is very close to the border with Indonesia because Borneo uh, is shared between Malaysia and Indonesia, obviously. Um, And Batang is another national park. It's home to the Iban, which is uh, one of Sarawak's indigenous tribes. They still live a pretty semi-traditional lifestyle in what they call longhouses. And... um, 
these these tribes people, they were once fearsome warriors. They were headhunters. In fact, they were still headhunting as uh, recently as the 1960s. So right. they've got a fearsome reputation. Mm. And I visited uh, the Mingkak Longhouse, which is home to 37 families of the Iban, all very living a communal lifestyle, very remote, um, and just, yeah, just so different to... Everyday life are as we approachable? know it. Are they nice or uh, incredibly approachable and very savvy when it comes to attracting the tourist dollar? Okay, they know so how they to know sell you a souvenir. Absolutely. Oh, no, I bet they do. Yeah. Hey, listen, I was going to say um, this could be the sort of destination that if you're heading maybe to to Europe from yeah. New Zealand, yeah. maybe a stopover in Singapore, a bit of a yeah. detour out of Singapore, right? Very much so. Yeah. If you were flying either, let's say through Singapore or Kuala Lumpur, yeah, um, it's a very short flight across to Kuching. So, yeah, if you are looking for a stopover with a difference in a fabulous chunk of Borneo, um, it is super easy. From Singapore, the flights are only 30 minutes long. Yeah, that's doable. Coming up, something completely different. We're heading to San Francisco. Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. Abercrombie and Kent was born on safari in East Africa in the early 1960s. It's grown to become the world leader in luxury adventure travel. Now with 56 offices and more than 2,500 travel experts on the ground around the world, Abercrombie and Kent takes the world's most discerning travellers on exquisite journeys in more than 100 countries and all seven continents. This is luxury travel redefined, taking you out of your comfort zone in exquisite comfort on handcrafted, bespoke, private and small group journeys and luxury expedition cruises. Talk to your travel agent, call Abercrombie & Kent on 0800 441 or visit abercrombiekent.co.nz. Let's talk San Francisco. I feel a bit guilty, Mike, because I've been to many cities in North America, but I still haven't done San Francisco. Shameful. Yes, and people say to me, forget your LA, forget your Las Vegas, yes. get to San Francisco. What am I missing out on? The fact that it's a city on the bay, uh, hence the name, the Bay City, mm. it's got a spectacular natural setting, magnificent architecture, and I really like the fact that it is a city of very distinct neighbourhoods. Even though they yeah. sort of are they're cheek by jowl, you know, it's all very compact. Um, there is a real perky personality to those neighbourhoods. So I think that's what makes it really interesting to sort of dip into. When I think of San Francisco, that's exactly what I think of. I think of the little neighbourhoods, the full house house. Yeah, very much. And the trams. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, yep. But surely there's more to San Francisco than that. Well, most people would want to go and see the Golden Gate. They yeah. want to see Fisherman's Wharf. They want to see the seals sunbathing down at Fisherman's Wharf. They would go to Alcatraz. So, yeah, once you've ticked off, you know, all of those sort of banner attractions, I think that's uh, when you want to perhaps think, okay, where can I do a bit of a deeper dive into? And I would say neighbourhoods. The neighbourhood mm. I really love uh, is North Beach, which is between – downtown San Francisco and Fisherman's Wharf. It's about right. a 10-minute walk from either end. Mm. I've got a friend who's from San Francisco. 
He's really proud of his city. Like, yep. really, really proud. Yeah. But he doesn't look down on cities that are close by. It's quite refreshing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. He's probably not overly proud of the fact that they have got a massive homelessness problem. So yeah. if you stay in the Tenderloin district, which is close to downtown San, uh, San Francisco, well, in fact, it is part of downtown, the Tenderloin district. I mean, that's just overrun with rough sleepers and junkies and it is horrendous. Why aren't they housed? Well, I do wonder, and I know this probably sounds a bit cynical, but there does seem to be an industry in supposedly helping them. Mm. So, you know, the the state government and the city council will give all these organisations money supposedly to feed them and to provide them with a bit of temporary shelter and some clothing. Yeah, I worry about that too. Yeah. That, that, uh, when you provide too much money, it becomes a bit, a bit of a sector. You yeah. know, where's the, where's the support long-term so, you know, yeah. they can help them out forever. Absolutely. Um, Let's Should we talk do, about North Beach? Yeah, let's do that. That's supposed to be amazing, right? Yeah, it's very community-minded. And um, a really good example of this, which uh, I discovered when I was there a couple of months ago, and I was doing a walking tour on North Beaches, yeah. uh, the guide said to me, oh, I see that Catholic church over there. <laughs> she said it had been mothballed years and years ago by the Catholic church, uh, by the Vatican. Yeah. And the, the locals, very strong Italian heritage in um, North Beach, very big Italian population, they actually lobbied the Vatican to reopen their Catholic church. So, And they did a lot of fundraising to get it up and running again. So um, that is probably the sort of example where the community will mobilise around an effort. They do a huge amount of of good works, you know, for people who are hard up. Um, If there is like a little deli that is struggling financially, Mm. um, the call goes out across North Beach to help save this deli because they love their delis. And, um, yeah, there is that great sort of civic spirit to North Beach. Speaking of delis, there are some standout cafeterias you were talking to me about the other day that you would go back because you just love. Yeah, I think... Like the memorabilia kind of cafes. Oh, definitely. There are probably two, like, really iconic retail establishments that are must-sees in North Beach. One would be City Lights Box Store, which is about 70 years old. The fella who helped establish it, Chris, Lawrence Ferengetti, he is still working behind the counter. He is 100 years old. Wow. And he's still there. That is just the most amazing box store. And then when it comes to, yeah, the cafes, you really do need to go uh, to Cafe Trieste because there is so much movie history there. Francis Ford Coppola uh, wrote most of The Godfather, over several hundred cups of coffees at Cafe Trieste. (laughs) Um, And around the corner, Cafe Zoetrope is owned by Ford Coppola. That is also packed with movie memorabilia. And his nephew, of course, Nicolas Cage, uh, is often in the cafe chatting to patrons to make sure they're having a good time. Well, there you go. Now we'll be all racing down there to see Nicolas Cage and get a selfie. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, there's plenty of that. Um... You, we were going to talk about um, the custard sponge sherry rum. Yes. This sounds great. Yes, I did tip off Chris about this. Um, there are some amazing, highly calorific, uh, sweet Fat-free. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> but you do want to go to the century-old Victoria Pastry I'm glad Company. you mentioned this. This looks amazing. Oh, pastries in North Beach, <laughs> I tell you. Uh, at Victoria, the best cannoli in town. Uh, the century-old Ligueria Bakery, um, their focaccia-only breads are just incredible. And then, yes, at the Stella Pastry Cafe. This cafe's been going about 80 years. They do the most outrageous desserts. And the one you really do want to try is actually trademarked. Um, it's their own original 
uh, concoction. It's called a scary pantina cake. It is basically, Chris, a heaped pile of custard sponge, masala, sherry, and rum. Eat that, you've gone to heaven. I feel like that now, actually. Absolutely. Um, okay, I want to talk to you about this theatre you were talking to me about before uh, that's yeah. kind of off the beaten track. I mean, you're not a massive theatre person yourself, but you tell me about this because this sounds incredible. Yeah, if you've um, had your fill of North Beach, something really quirky to check out is a place called The Audium. And apparently it's the only theatre of its kind in the world. It's actually been operating for years. I only checked it out for the first time a couple of months ago. So it's the small theatre. Yeah. And they run regular performances whereby you are in complete darkness and the theatre's 176 speakers bathe you in sounds. Oh. And the way they've structured the speaker system, mm. it's like the sound, you can feel the sound wash over you, under you, around you. It truly is um, a bath of sound. So the interior design of the theatre doesn't really matter then? No, not at all. Did not you, at all. Can you actually see inside when you're walking in? Yeah, you can. It looks like a very functionary space. There's nothing fancy about the theatre. So it's all in darkness and it's obviously all about, um, you know, the, the, the primal essence of sound. It's very trippy. This sounds a bit weird, but I suppose they could just give you an MP3 file and send it to your email and you could listen that way, couldn't you? You probably could. You know? Your, your noise-cancelling headphones. <laughs> is that cynical of me? It's very cynical, <laughs> but this is like the shared experience, Chris, Okay, because shared experience. complete darkness with others. So, yeah, if you do want to try something quirky, go to the Audium. Want to just talk to you about the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you yeah. actually still get on there now? I mean, yeah. with all these you know, security issues. What's the deal with that now? Yes, you can still walk across it. Did you do that? Um, no, I did bike across it. Um, so you can, that's the other option. It is actually quite a long walk. <laughs> and if it's windy, it's not exactly pleasant. Yeah. Um, what I would suggest you do is like most people will head to Golden Gate from Fisherman's Wharf along that, uh, what do they call it, the marina sort of precinct. If you want a completely different perspective on the Golden Gate Bridge, and, you know, perhaps like a selfie that, is very different to how most people take a selfie of the Golden Gate. Go to the other side of it. So oh. you go down to Land's End Lookout, and there's this fantastic walking trail that takes you um, around China Beach in the Presidio to a far more unpeopled perspective of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's like the it's like the B side of the Golden Gate Bridge, the flip side. Yeah, and close by is one yeah. of the world's biggest breeding sites for great. White sharks. Yes. Um, once you've got over onto the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge, if you do want to go across it, there are some great trails on Marin Headlands. And this is one of these uh, mega breeding sites for great whites. When I was there, I was standing on the Marin Headlands looking back down at the Golden Gate Bridge. And underneath the bridge, they were like hunting in a pack. Um, half a dozen... Um, great white sharks. And apparently they had worked out quite some time ago that the sea lions from Fisherman's Wharf like to take an afternoon swim out into the ocean under the Golden oh, Gate Oh, good Bridge. luck with that. I know. So they were staking them out. Oh. Nasty. Did you see anything untoward? No. Uh, maybe the call had gone out uh, to the sea lion family. <laughs> uh, the sharks are there. Don't go swimming today, kids. <laughs> Clever sharks, though, eh? They had worked that out. Amazing. 
let's head to the west of Western Australia. And if you've done Perth, that's all very well. I love Perth. Yeah. But the great southern region is amazing. It is rich in history, isn't it, mm, Mike? Very much. And what attracted me there, Chris, was its Anzac heritage because yeah. it basically bookends Gallipoli on the pilgrimage trail because Albany is really the starting point of the Anzac story. The staging post, it's where so many New Zealand and Aussie troops and their horses set sail for war. And for 16,000 of them, it was the very last glimpse of Australasia they would ever see. So, yeah, it's mm. about a three, four-hour drive south of Perth. Uh, absolutely worth the trek. Where's a good starting point, though? Because there are different parts where you can actually start yeah. where yeah. you want to walk or hike, right? That's right. Topographically, yeah, uh, Albany is really, really interesting. Um, King George Sound um, is where those troop ships set sail from. And a really good starting point is the Anzac Heritage Centre. It's only been open about six, six and a half years. Um, a really lovely little um, centre come museum with so many masterly twists. They've got like this infinity waterfall they've built and it seemingly drops into King George Sound from inside the building and then disappears on the horizon. And as the cascading water uh, drops, they have superimposed through technology the names of those 41,000 departing troops uh, with lighting projections. So it's those sort of touches that just make it really special. And that historic video footage that you can see on a loop, that looks incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite haunting, actually. Yeah. And um, you see that video footage as you walk into the Heritage Centre and that's the stomping of the boots, you know, that that marching beat just continuously thuds away. It gets in your head a bit. The other really interesting thing they've done at the Heritage Centre is that when you enter the receptionist will ask you to select a card. And it's a bit like a dog tag. And dozens and dozens of the troops have had their life stories immortalised at their centre so that you can follow their personal life story step by step throughout the museum. And there are like these digital interpretation points in the museum. And as you get to know more and more about your soldier, the suspense builds as to... Well, what happened to them? Do they live? Do they die? And you get to find out? You do. You do. Now, I was given the card of a guy called Private Robert Hamilton, and he was actually one of the very first Anzacs to make it ashore on the beaches of Gallipoli. And all throughout my walk at the Heritage Centre, I was getting more and more nervous as to what's going to happen to Private Hamilton. He actually survived Gallipoli, he survived the Western Front. He made it home to Australia. He was from Queensland. And several weeks after arriving home into Queensland, he was killed in a farm machinery accident. And it was just like <laughs> such a downer. <laughs> that is a bit of a downer. Oh, so it's a real emotional workout, and I love how they've personalised it that way. The best view in town? It's only about 10 minutes from the museum, isn't it? Yeah, Convoy Hill. That's absolutely right. Absolutely rich in Anzac history, and they've got all these fabulous memorials to all the convoy troop ships. All the Kiwi vessels are memorialised, like the Hororata, uh, the Monganui, and the views are actually quite similar to what you get at Marlborough Sounds. Just these magnificent, long 
sweeping views mm. down the sounds um, like King George Sound. It's a beautiful place. There's other things to this amazing region too, not just Anzac spirited stuff, right? No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Tell, us, tell us about that. Um, a really good place to go, and it's about a 30-minute drive from Albany, is Tondurup National Park. It's home to the Gap, and it's this gaping chasm between two towering granite shelves. When the ocean water surges in, um, it puts on quite a show, and they've built this ingenious viewing platform that juts well past the cliff edge. Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah. I know. I had to do a double take. I had to do a double take. Um, It does take a bit of courage to venture out, but man alive, what an experience. And you are staring down into what looks like a watery abyss. It is quite amazing. So you did do it then? I did. Okay. Yeah, it took me a while. Uh, William Bay (laughs) National Park, let let me touch on that. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful colour water. They've got a fabulous uh, spot along the shoreline called Green's Pool, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's the most bewitching array of gentle turquoise waters Mm. edged by pristine white sand. And you get those sorts of um, vistas and settings all along the shoreline of William Bay National Park. It's like Technicolor. It is so vivid. Good for snorkeling. Very good. The clarity of that watercress is just incredible. And, I mean, like a lot of these Western Australian beaches and coastlines, um, compared to the East Coast, you know, your Bondi beaches and your Manly, there's just not the people. So you're not competing for for towel space on, on the shoreline. Okay. Elephant Rocks. Wow. Elephant Rocks. I tell you what, nature obviously was having um, uh, a humorous day when she cooked up Elephant Rocks. These are these rich red granite Mm. rocks and they uncannily look like a lumbering herd of elephants. The more you look at them, the more you start thinking, they're elephants. How did they become frozen in stone? It is the most wondrous spectacle um, and also, you can um, walk along the, the the coastal trail on William Bay and check out the wildflowers. Now, obviously, in the spring months, they're at their best. Yeah. But any time of year, because of the climate, the wildflowers are out and they are just a delight. And such a good Instagram photo of that too, eh? Totally. So nice. Yeah. Now, courtesy of the Lonely Planet, the world's number one travel guidebook, we have got a giveaway. Yes, if you want to be in the draw for a copy of Lonely Planet's Guide to Western Australia, including Albany, uh, subscribe, rate, or review this podcast at Apple Podcasts, and you'll be in the draw. Good luck. Also, we need to remind uh, the listeners, Mike, that we'd love your feedback as well on anything that you've discussed or something you would like Mike and I to discuss. And all the show notes are listed on the website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. Absolutely. And you can get in touch with us through the website as well. Um, A new episode of Kiwi Tripsters will be released in a couple of weeks' time. We'd love you to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. Uh, and I hope uh, you had a marvellous new year and I hope you haven't broken your resolutions you made, you know, on uh, yeah. December 31 yet, Chris. Don't, I have none. Really? To live a happy, prosperous 2020. Yes. And your new year's resolution will be to take down your Christmas tree. Before? Well, now would be good. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing this show from the, the living room of Mike Yardley's uh, lounge today. Yes. And he's still got his Christmas tree up, haven't you? Last year, I don't think I took it down <laughs> until February 14. So I'll see if I can make an improvement on that this year, Chris. <laughs> you stay well, everybody. On the next episode, uh, Tombstone Tourism, uh, the world's greatest cemeteries. Mm. Plus, we'll take you through the wondrous west coast of New Zealand, South Island. We'll catch you soon. Take care. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters.
Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Bye.